Book Society Podcast. We're doing a special episode today. It is the best of the Miami Book Fair. Last year, devotees of the podcast will recall, we went to the Miami Book Fair, we met a bunch of authors, and we interviewed them over the course of the next couple of months. And they turned out to be some of our best episodes. And we're doing the same thing this year. I've already been interviewing Miami Book Fair authors leading up to the book fair. We're recording this at the book fair now. So if I sound a little bit different, it's because I'm speaking into a different microphone in a different room. Usually I'm at my studio in Los Angeles. Today I'm in a library in Miami. So it's kind of like a clip show. We're going to feature the best moments from last year's Miami Book Fair, including author and magician Joshua Jay, poet and all-around brilliant person Maggie Smith, editor, author, and journalist Kathy Clarich, amazing Pulitzer Prize-winning genius author Jane Smiley, amazing editor and author Denise Hamilton, and another amazing and brilliant Pulitzer Prize winner, Adwige Dantakat. And these are all some of the best moments of our show so far, and they're also some of my favorite moments, moments where I either learned something or I said something to a guest that was wrong and they set me straight, or where I just had a conversation that was really fun and beautiful and interesting. So I hope you enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't heard this show before, this is probably a great episode to start with. And then you can hear extended conversations going forward. We'll probably do this next year too, because we're at the Miami Book Fair right now, recording interviews with these really amazing authors that we're going to be delivering to you over the next couple of months. So listen to it, enjoy it. Let us know what you think. So I've been a fan of magic for as long as I've been a fan of music. And I always intuited a connection between the two, but I was never really able to articulate it until I read your book, How Magicians Think. Did reading How Music Works for you give you like the opposite experience? Yeah, I'll tell you, and your listeners can relate to this maybe, when my publicist told me about the format and said, so what book do you want to do? I was really torn between a few. I ended up choosing How Music Works because I do think there's so much about it that we can dive into from many angles. And I've taken a lot of notes so that we can do that. But it just as easily could have been a book called How to See by David Sally, the artist, which is exactly how music works, but for visual arts, for painting. He's a painter. And he wrote a book on how to view art and what we see when we look at art and what we should think about when we are artists. And look, I'm the furthest thing from a visual artist, but I found this book fascinating. And another book, still yet another book I almost chose was Stephen King on writing, which is part writing manual, which I think every author needs to read. It's just such an honest bare bones, meat and potatoes sort of account of writing, and also part memoir. And I am very much turned on and fascinated by any time an artist reveals their craft and the inside talk and jargon and world of that craft. What shocks me is when anybody is surprised by that. Like it was really hard to sell my book initially, really hard. And the feedback I kept getting, and thank God I had the hard-headedness to look at everybody giving me the same feedback and going, how come everybody's wrong? Is because everybody was saying to me, do we need an insider's look at magic? Is there really a market for that? And I'm going, how music works wasn't written for musicians. It's not written for the subset of recording artists trying to get an album deal. How music works is written for Anybody who loves anything done at a great level and wants to hear about how an artist has made their way. 
So on those terms, how could we not want a book that does the same thing for magic? And eventually, of course, I found a great home with Workman Publishing and they got it. And my editor, John Miles, really understood what we were trying to do. But yeah, I was up against people going, don't you think this is just inside baseball? Why is it inside baseball? Why can't we talk about the inner life of a magician? It's not just demystifying music. It's demystifying how things at a high level are done. One of the things that I learned about magic that blew my mind that is so obvious, but I never thought of is that, of course, magicians practice all the time. I mean, you, from the description of your book, practice like a concert violinist. And that's how you get good, of course. Yeah. Take just the example you've given practice, right? So many important insights in my craft come from outside my craft. So the way that I practice and the way that I think about practice comes from the music world, because in the music world, they have terms, actual terminology to define different kinds of practice. So they have mindful practice where you sit and you pretend, even though you're in the walls of your own apartment, you pretend that you're on that stage at Carnegie Hall and you play. And then we have experimental practice, which isn't as much practice as it is feeling around. How do you get into a move? How do you get out of a move? How do you get into a piece of music and out of that piece of music? And then you have sort of going over the rough parts where if you always have a problem at one part, you do that part and drill it. You drill down and drill it. And we have that in sleight of hand. And so, again, it's so foreign to me that anybody could question a book that demystifies magic when the best artists steal from other artists. And we take techniques. I've highlighted so many things that were passages that I thought, hey, I know he's talking about music and performing a concert at CBGB's, but what I take from that is XYZ. You did interviews with great magicians, the magicians that everybody can name, you know, David Copperfield, Penn and Teller, David Blaine. Did you have any favorites? Did you have any insights from those interviews that you want to share? Yeah, I'm really happy with all three of those sections because when lay people do quote unquote think pieces on those magicians, they get so wrapped up, in my opinion, what I'd call the window dressing, the persona David Blaine puts out, or capitalizing and spending pages on the decision for Teller to be silent and pen to speak, which is really like the gateway, right? That's the first thing you talk about, but it's very much not where you need to end up when you're dissecting what makes Penn and Teller great. That's just scratching the surface. So I can't say which of the three is my favorite section. I like different things about all three. Let me give you a couple insights on each one. Teller is the best to interview because Teller is so insightful and he's an open book. I did not get the impression ever that Teller was being guarded or playing with his legacy. When you talk with Teller, he wants to talk craft and he's very vulnerable. He will tell you about pieces in their repertoire that he doesn't like as much as the ones he does or the failures along with the success. David Copperfield, it was, of course, my idol as a kid. He is the most famous living magician, such a great artist and such great work ethic. And I interviewed him on his private jet, such a surreal experience. And he was so generous. And what was clear to me, he's probably the biggest victim of like puff pieces and quick things and visually driven articles that he was so hungry to have a truthful think piece that I was so conscious of my time. I said, you know, we'll just take 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And he was like, no, we're doing this until it's done. And we went on for hours, just hours. And he's such a perfectionist. And I can relate in my own work to this idea of taking a trick and working on it for years. And it shows. And it's why his show is so great. 
And then David Blaine is the weirdest of the three. And I really wanted to impart, and I think I do, that David Blaine is not playing a weird character. That's really him. He is an odd, odd guy. I don't want to spoil it for readers, but basically the end of that chapter, he says, I've got to go now. I'm about to jump out of a plane. And another journalist sort of picked on me a little bit to my face and sort of said, like, there's no way that happened. I've been interviewing people for 20 years. There's no way. I don't know how to make them believe me, but David would call me. I mean, he's a weird one. He, instead of like several days of long hours, long interviews or shadowing, he would like call and then say, I got to go. I got to order lunch. I'll call you back. We would do like little 10 minute bursts all over the town and in planes. And truly that was true. What he wouldn't tell me is he was training to do his most recent stunt, which is being floated by balloons into the air and then letting go and falling. And he was training secretly for that stunt. And he would call me on his ascent. And so it was true. So this journalist be damned, that really was a true thing, even if it was perhaps unbelievable. But David Blaine is fascinating and pushes himself and his work to the furthest reaches of what's possible. And that's what I tried to capture in that piece. The thing that I noticed when I read these books that poetry does is that as a professional artistic person, I sort of fly around with these vague notions in my head that I can't quite articulate. And when I read poetry like this, like Carrie's, it's like saying these things that I've not been able to pull out of the ether, but I felt. And that's really how I felt when I read the whole book is I've had none of these experiences, but I've also had all of these experiences. That's poetry, like the ability to articulate the thing that even if you haven't had that specific experience, you've had something so closely adjacent to it that you have that sort of aha moment and you see yourself in the poem, or conversely, something you find in that poem makes it impossible for you not to carry it with you back into the world. And so you can't look at a tree, or you can't have a lunch with your child, or you're feeding the goldfish, or whatever the thing is, is never really the same again, because you're now looking at it through the lens of having read that poem. And so these things are things we carry with us. I thought maybe I would read the last poem, which has one of the best endings for any poem and therefore any book ever, in my humble opinion. And the poem is called The Spirit Asks. This is the life with fried eggs. This is the life with Pyrex dishes of many sizes, none of which I purchased myself. This is the life with a boy who'd eat chicken nuggets for every meal and the girl who'd asked four times this week if she can please clean the cat's ears again with a Q-tip. They are dirty. No, they're not. This is the life with lives in it so small we have to put up a sign on the front door. Don't forget the fish or we'd forget the fish. This life, sometimes I feel myself so deep inside it blessed so painfully, so painfully blessed, pushing into it, pushing, and yet I cannot get through. I want too much. I want a God who will save us all and a God who will feel the little heat coming off the candle I lit in the grotto. A God in heaven, but a God here too, you know? I want a God like the one I tell my children about, the one who loves everyone. Even Trump? Well, I guess so, yes, even Trump. Please, give me a God that exists. That's all I'll ever want. And the Spirit says, okay. And I say, really? And the Spirit says, yeah, probably. Yeah, 
Man, that's a great poem. Ugh. What about that poem stuck out to you? First of all, I love the anaphora. So it just as like a poet and a poetry geek, the use of anaphora or the repetition of the same phrase or words at the beginning of sentences, this is the life, this is the life, the life, the life, the life. It feels like just the right exit for a book called The Life. But I think what I find so charming about this poem and many of the poems in this book is how these big existential ideas butt up against really conversational speech, like that little you know in the middle of the poem that, you know, if you brought this to workshop in graduate school or in a college classroom, maybe somebody would be like, I don't know, can you do that in a poem? Maybe you should take that out. It doesn't feel very poemy to have the speaker kind of speaking so casually to us as the reader, but I love that. And then the ending, that sort of dialogue back and forth between the sort of imagined spirit and the speaker of the poem. Yeah, you can have that. Probably. Yeah. The ambivalence at the end, I think is what I love. It's like reassuring, but not tied with a bow. Like it's not Pollyanna, everything's going to be okay, reassuring. Yeah, it's radical, really. I mean, this is the voice of God, for lack of a better term. And there's nowhere in the Christian Bible where God says probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've said this before on this podcast many times, but my religion is that there are things that I don't understand and will never understand. And that's just kind of where I leave it. I'm also in your church, apparently, which it's funny because I don't actually attend. So I haven't seen you passing the <laughs> dish. But yes, I am also there. So our God doesn't need money. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's great. You've become a best-selling author. You're probably going to places that you never thought you would go before. Yeah, it's strange and exciting to me what words have made possible. Because being a poet didn't exactly seem like a smart career decision, let's say. <laughs> As a creative writing student who also took my other field of study in college was philosophy, by all accounts, I could still be living in my parents' basement. So just the idea that I'm able to do what I do still all these years later, and that at least some people embrace it. I mean, poetry has a fairly small but very committed readership. And so, I mean, just the fact that I'm still doing it and that it does afford me opportunities I never would have imagined. In the hardest moments over the last couple of years, there have been times where I've thought, holy moly, even with all of this stuff going on, 15-year-old Maggie writing poems could not have dreamed any of this stuff up. So it helps keep things in perspective when the basement floods or something goes wrong in my personal life, because I still, honest to goodness, young me would be over the moon excited about some of the things I've been able to do or some of the people that have read my work that I can't believe my name or my words were ever in their mouth. It's just mind boggling and just not ever taking that for granted. Yeah, it's amazing what someone who's never had a job can accomplish sometimes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel like as soon as everyone realizes this is all going to go away, so I feel like we need to keep this a secret. Like, no, this is work. I'm working right now. I did not know that there weren't really any prompts, and I think that that comment of mine and that reaction of mine says probably more about me than it does about the book, that I'm imagining like a movie where you're teaching prisoners how to read and write English. And I have no idea what the reality of working with incarcerated people is like. 
And I think I put a lot of my own biases on this book because I read it without even realizing it. You said that really organically, right? And I think that that's the idea behind the exchange class, right? Where the outside student doesn't even realize when they're writing the inside student that they're bringing with them their biases and prejudices, and they only come out once they start to have this exchange. And it's our hope with this book because of the incredible variety of voices from all around the country with all different age groups is that people will recognize the humanity of the incarcerated population, which you said in the beginning, is deliberately separated from the rest of the world. So we don't think about them. We don't hear from them and we don't have to see them because most prisons aren't anywhere near big urban areas. It's like you'll drive by and you go, oh yeah, there's probably a bunch of criminals, bad people, evil people locked up there. I'm really glad they're not anywhere near us. And we're trying to unpack some of that so that people can recognize there is a lot of humanity inside. Not to say that people have not left victims and done a lot of harm on the outside that people have to pick up after a crime has been committed. Sure. Yeah, of course, there are victims. And of course, there are genuinely bad people in prison. But it's a little bit like a documentary that about something that you know, you should know about, but don't really want to know about it is kind of in that vein, but do your soul a favor and read this book, because it really will make you understand some people that you never would have thought about better and see them in the same light that you see your friends. There's a poem in here called blind Sestinas are invisible in the dictionary. Tibni Reth. I had to look up what a Sestina was. And it's this ancient poetry form where the end word of each line is jumbled from stanza to stanza. It's just very archaic. And it's one of those forms that you really have to be smart and clever. And in order to write it, you have to really plan ahead. It's not just the kind of poem that you write off the top of your head, you really have to have it together. And she writes it. And I didn't even realize that it was in this form until the middle where she mentions what a sestina is and says someone's going to have to look up what a sestina is. And so I said, I should probably look that up. And then I realized what it was. But it's just so incredibly clever. It's the kind of thing that if a friend of mine showed it to me, I would say, wow, that's fantastic. Good job. And I'd be very impressed. Let me just read a little bit from her bio, which is in the back. We asked each of the authors to write their own bio and describe who they wanted the public to know after reading their piece. And so she wrote, Tibney Reth is currently serving a 36-year sentence for second-degree murder in the state of Alaska. She was born in Bandung, Indonesia, 57 years ago and became a naturalized citizen at the age of 12. She grew up in Southern California and graduated from Loma Linda University in California, as well as from Aurora University in Illinois. Before coming to prison, she worked in healthcare, social work, commercial fishing, commercial driving, and aviation. Among her many hobbies are cooking and travel, having visited four continents and eight countries. As of this writing, she still doesn't know what to do when she grows up. So one of the things that we did, Lucas, in trying to choose pieces is obviously you have someone who is highly educated and understands or even knows what a sestina is. But we also had a couple other people from Alaska who had never written anything before, but loved the idea of writing something for a publication. So we have published authors in here. We have first time writers. 
We tried to get a variety of religious backgrounds, sexual orientation, right? Because again, what we're trying to show is that the population that's behind bars is a microcosm of the population out in the free world. And again, to connect people to the humanity of the voices that we're highlighting in the book. I wonder if this time in British history mirrored the sort of centerpiece of decline and fall, which is the transition from the Republic to the Caesars. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think he did do that. Everything he wrote was self-consciously political because of the way that he grew up and then followed by his success. He saw all of the classes in England for what they were. He didn't see them from above. He didn't see them from below. In some sense, he kept walking up the ladder and seeing what the class status was and how it was very bad for impoverished people. And so, yeah, I think he consciously picked the decline and fall of the Roman Empire because he didn't understand how the way that the English class system was set up was going to survive. I mean, here's a little quote. In my social experiences, since Mrs. Betty Higdon came upon the scene and left it, I have found circumlocutional champions disposed to be warm with me on the subject of my view of the poor law. My friend, Mr. Bounderby, could never see any difference between leaving the Coketown hands exactly as they were and requiring them to be fed with turtle soup and venison out of gold spoons. Idiotic propositions of a parallel nature had been freely offered for my acceptance, and I had been called upon to admit that I would give poor law relief to anyone, anywhere, anyhow. Putting this nonsense aside, I have observed a suspicious tendency in the champions to divide into two parties, the one contending that there are no deserving poor who prefer death by slow starvation and bitter weather to the mercies of some relieving officers and some union houses, the other admitting that there are such poor, but denying that they have any cause or reason for what they do. What I think he's saying here is that he's kind of given up on the political establishment in England to actually help needy people. And that includes people who work for a living. And this is the last book he completed. I think maybe he felt during the early part of his life that he was going to make a difference. And I think by the time he got to Our Mutual Friend, he felt like things had gotten worse. And although he had gotten prosperous and famous and successful, what he had urged other people to do to somehow fix the class distinctions that hadn't worked. So I think there is a kind of political aspect to our mutual friend, but it's not quite as strong or overt as it was in some of his earlier books. Just for people who haven't read this one, because it's 800 pages and we only gave you a week to do it. There's one character that I'm going to ask you about now, Mr. Boffin, who is like a housekeeper, basically, for a very wealthy man and ends up inheriting this man's fortune. So we think. For most of the book, that's the case. So he's very wealthy, and he habitually gives money away to basically any petitioner that comes to him. What do you think Dickens was saying with this character? Is this how he thinks wealthy people should behave, or is this parody? 
Oh, for sure. I think he thinks that that's how wealthy people should behave. But he also couldn't (laughs) resist making fun of everybody that he writes about. The key to the Boffins is that they do the best they can. And at the end of the novel, they're part of the happy ending because they're kind, decent people. And this is another thing I loved about Dickens when I was young was his use of names that were so funny and telling. So the veneerings are people who seem to have a lot of money, but have absolutely no ability to relate to anybody. And so there's a character, Mr. Twemlow, we see him from the beginning. He keeps being invited to the parties, but then when he comes, they keep ignoring him. And he keeps reflecting on who seems to be the best friend of the veneerings, but that's somebody that they always have just met. So yeah, Dickens is great at making fun of all kinds of people, top and bottom. There's this great essay by Thomas Nagel called What's It Like to Be a Bat, which I don't know if you're familiar with. (laughs) I've never read that, no. It's a philosophical essay, and the thesis of it is essentially there is nothing that it is like to be a bat that we could communicate. Because bats think in a spatial way that is just so alien to us that we could never understand it. And this is a big sort of idea in contemporary philosophy that I just took for granted. And reading your book, I feel like I have some idea what it's like to be a raven and some idea what it's like to be a mallard. The thing that you did that was so brilliant, and I don't know if this was intuitive or intentional or a combination of both, is to really have the animals understand the worlds from the senses that would be most obvious and prevalent to them. Yeah, we know stuff about animals. We know that dogs have a really good sense of smell. We know that horses have a really good sense of hearing. The sense that I gave the rat, well, I don't know that rats have that sense, but how would they survive without it? The sense I gave the rat is a sensory feeling of the power of someone nearby. I wanted there to be a rat because when I was looking around this part of Paris, which is right near the Champ de Mar, I saw these beautiful old houses that had clearly been there since maybe the mid 19th century or thereabouts. And I figured there had to be rats in the walls because the walls looked really thick. So I wanted to have a rat. I wanted to have different kinds of animals. So there's a horse, a dog, a couple of rats, a raven, a couple of mallards. And I wanted them to communicate with one another. And I wanted them to have different things to report to one another. I did do research on rats, the difference between black rats and brown rats. I did research on mallards and why they're different from other kinds of ducks. For years, I've been learning about horses and dogs, but I did research on ravens. If you're in that area around Paris on the west side, You see lots of flocks of ravens. And yes, they're always, always, always crowing or cawing, you know. So what are they doing? Well, they're talking to one another. They have to in order to do anything together. And so it just sort of won me over. But I also liked coming up with the human characters. The human characters are just the most likely ones to be around when the animals are in the Champ de Mar. There's the guy who is in charge of 
the gardens and the landscape. Because I walked down a nearby street on the south side and saw a bakery there, I thought, okay, I should put a baker in here. And then there's the very old lady and her very young son. And I thought that would be interesting because there must be somebody in one of those houses who's really old and who has a sense of the history of the area and the history of Paris. So the humans just sort of came to me one by one because they would be typical of that particular place. The animals, just because they were fun. As a New Yorker who has moved to Los Angeles and has grown to love it, I mean, I moved out here wanting to hate it and expecting to hate it. I think it's important to acknowledge that all of these dark things that we're talking about about Los Angeles and the way that it exposes the darkness of the soul and the crudeness of humanity are 100% true. And the city does do that. And I think it's known primarily in the public consciousness for these two things of this noir darkness and then glitzy Hollywood vapidness. And those are definitely two things that exist in Los Angeles. But what do you think it is that people don't see that make people love to live here? Because I don't know anyone who lives here who doesn't love it. Well, the weather, I mean, it's a beautiful place to live. If you're not stuck on the freeway, you've got the powder white sands and the beaches that go on forever. You've got the snow-capped mountains, the palm trees, the funky old architecture in old Los Angeles, and the streets that change, you know, from street to street and house to house, whether it's California Craftsman or Spanish Bungalow or Tudor, weird palaces. It's a little bit like New York, that it's a melting pot of so many different cultures and religions and people. I think people love that about it. So it's a very multicultural place. It's become more so than in Raymond Chandler's time when he was writing. There was one line that just haunted me about the book, and it's the main character says, I used to love the ocean. I used to love to come down to the Pacific and see the ocean. He goes, I can't stand it now. If I never see it again, that'll be too soon. And of course, that's because they're stuck inside this ballroom where it's dark, day and night, dancing in front of these crowds and being exhorted by the master of ceremonies dude. And the ocean is always pounding underfoot. I think that it was a fantastic idea. They had dance marathons everywhere, not just on the edge of a pier overlooking the Pacific Ocean, but as a metaphor for death or for this wild, ravenous creature who's desperate to like swallow them up into nothingness. The ocean roaring underfoot is a great one. It's kind of nipping at their heels. They can always hear it. It is eternal. It's eroding the sand. It's eroding the piers and it's going to get them one way or another. And so I think that Horace McCoy takes something that is so beautiful, the ocean at the end of the continent, and he turns it into this dark, looming, menacing force. That's just one of the tiny little things. It's interesting because the book doesn't take you on a tour of Los Angeles. It opens with Melrose. He's walking down Melrose, and that's when he runs into Gloria. And then there's a mention of Western Avenue. So we know exactly where that is if we live in L.A., mid-central city. The rest of it takes place inside a ballroom, pretty much. And so it's such an L.A. novel, and yet it doesn't take you to a lot of the same places that Postman Always Swings Twice or The Big Sleep or some of those other L.A. novels take you. 
So we touched on this a little bit, but why do you think LA is such a great place for sci-fi? Octavia Butler, you mentioned Blade Runner, Philip K. Dick, Neil Stephenson, Snow Crash. Some of the greatest sci-fi in history either takes place in LA or is written by people in LA or both. Why do you think it's such a great place for that? There's just tons of sci-fi movies, future disaster movies that are set in LA. It's because I think the place is so surreal to begin with. You're never sure whether you're dealing with reality or something imaginary. There's so many ghosts here. So much has happened here. So much violence, so much craziness, so many layers of history. And of course, every city has so many layers of history. But I think that with Hollywood casting such a dark shadow over everything and such a looming shadow, it makes it okay to take that additional step into fantasy and to imagine an alternate LA. Man in the High Castle is set in San Francisco, but the idea is that the Japanese won World War II, the Japanese and the, the Nazis. And I think because LA and all of California is on the coast, it's the last gasp of America. You look out and it's all ocean and beyond it is Asia. It's a natural border. And all you have to do is just step across that border. It's got everything. And it's so fantastical to think that you can be on the beach in the morning and you can be skiing in the snow in the afternoon somewhere in the San Gabriel Mountains. And L.A. has always drawn fabulists and creatives and prophets and con men and charlatans. It's just a place where people come from other places. And so they're kind of unmoored and they're floating and they're looking for salvation, for prosperity, for health. In the 1800s, people came to Southern California for health reasons to get rid of tuberculosis or whatever the doctors would say, go to California and you could get on the railroad at one point for a dollar. You could come from New York or the Midwest, you could come for a dollar. So orange groves and fresh air and all of that. So People came here hoping to find all those things, and a lot of them did, but they lost their communities, they lost their churches where they used to go, they lost their family, and so they're drifting. Everyone is looking for salvation, and so I think that that makes them more prey to these fantastical ideas, and I think that's why, like Charlie Manson in the 60s, part of it was the times hippies and drugs and free love and all of this stuff. But part of it was, you know, everyone in LA is where he really hit his evil stride. And I don't think that was an accident. I think that there were just a lot of unmoored young people here that he was able to tap into. And I don't know that he would have flourished the way he did in Kansas City. I think he would have been imprisoned or driven out of town. But here in L.A., you can hide in the nooks and crannies and canyons and deserted ranches and the desert, and you can create your own reality. I wanted to ask you, so Jamaica Kincaid hates the English. I think that's safe to say. I think she <laughs> explicitly says that she hates the English. Do you feel the same way about the French? <laughs> I don't love the French for what they did to us and what continues to do us today, right? So... Jamaica Kincaid talks about the lingering cultural presence of the English and the French, the same way, I mean, similarly the way she describes it, but the French, what they did, they enslaved us, the colonialism, 
And then there was the Haitian Revolution in 1804, which capped in 1804, but was a 12-year revolution in which the English, the Spanish, they all flowed through. But what the French did in Haiti was particularly hideous. Post-independence, they made Haiti pay this exorbitant amount of money that really wasn't finished being paid until the 20th century. And then they also had to borrow from French banks to pay the debt to the French. So it's especially an hideous case of colonialism because there was no funds left. There's no funds left for education. There was no fund left to build a nation. So what the French did to us were paying until today. So I think this is why this book also resonates so much. It's sort of an extreme form of deprivation of white supremacy that Haiti is still paying for today. There's so many places in the world, like former sites of plunder, of colonialism, of continuing imperialism that have their own version of a book like this, right? In ways that we remain wounded, that we remain strapped with these desires that these powers have. And what I love what she says is that Antigua, she defines as an island, but also England as an island, right? Like this little bit of place that controlled like a third of the world's population. And the French was similar with Haiti, but also throughout Africa and all of the wealth that was extracted from those places in a way that still affects us today. Yeah, the Haitian Revolution is, I think, an understudied revolution in general, because it's so interesting and it was so important. The thing that struck me about it is that one is that it was the first successful slave revolt which is kind of amazing. The only, I think, successful slave revolt. But the reason that the slaves on Haiti felt empowered to revolt was because the French Revolution had just happened and the imperial power that was controlling Haiti had just fought a revolution based on equality and brotherhood. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was part of it, but also the enslaved Africans that they had brought over never lost their desire for freedom. Maybe the French, of course, this notion of their own revolution was part of it. But I think the Haitian Revolution was definitely grounded in the idea of globally Black people being free. So that even post-revolution, people were invited, like if you were enslaved elsewhere and you reached Haiti, you were free. You were given land, the newly freed Haitians you know, Simon Bolivar got weapons and funds and ships to go fight in part to liberate other enslaved people throughout the Americas. So the Haitian Revolution was also very much grounded on equality for Black people, of freedom for people throughout the region and the world were enslaved. You had the Americans, who was the second country in the hemisphere to also declare themselves free from an imperial power than like from the British as well. But they had that contradiction of well created equal while they were enslaving people. The Haitian revolution wanted to do away with all of that, wanted to be like all humans are free, including at that time women who were not free elsewhere either. Mm-hmm. 